Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in the History of the American West, which is part of the New Books Network. My name is Andy Grable. I'm your host for this episode, and I'm a professor of history, as well as a director of the William P. Clement Center for Southwest Studies at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. It's my great pleasure to speak today with Elliot West, alumni distinguished professor emeritus at the University of Arkansas, where he taught from 1979 to 2022. Elliot is the author of numerous path-breaking books, including The Contested Plains, Indians, Gold Seekers, and The Rush to Colorado, published by the University of Press, University Press of Kansas in 1998, which won numerous accolades, including the Francis Parkman Prize from the Society of American Historians, which is presented to a work of history that is distinguished by its literary merit. Elliot is no less accomplished as a teacher, and during his career, he won multiple awards for his work in the classroom. For my money, he is easily among the most accomplished historians of the American West and the broader 19th century United States of his entire generation. Today, we're going to talk about his latest book, Continental Reckoning, The American West in the Age of Expansion, which was published earlier this year by the University of Nebraska Press as part of its storied History of the American West series. Welcome to the podcast, Elliot. Thank you. It's good to be here, Andy. Excellent. So I've become an avid New Books Network listener, and it seems that many episodes, maybe even most of them, begin with some variation on this pretty basic question. Can you tell us a little bit about your career path and specifically how it is that you became a scholar of the American West? Well, uh, that was largely accidental. I grew up in a newspaper family. Uh, My father was the editor of of the uh, Dallas Morning News. My brother went on to be a, a travel journalist, very good one. Um, so I was expecting uh, to go into that world, which I loved. Uh, but I, along the way, uh, and I majored in journalism, but along the way, I uh, developed this, this, uh, this other love uh, for history, specifically American history. And on a whim, I was all ready to go into grad school in journalism at UT Austin. Uh, but on a whim, I decided to uh, apply for graduate school in the University of Colorado because I love Colorado. And in history, because I loved history. And uh, to my uh, astonishment, they offered me this very nice uh, fellowship for three years. Uh, and so I decided I'd do that. Um, when I got there, I, I was I was uh, shocked to discover that I was supposed to choose a field or to narrow my <laughs> my interest down. Uh, so I told them I want to be in the old South Southern history. Uh, they said they didn't do that. So I asked them, what do you do? And they said, oh, we do the West. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll do the West. So it was... <laughs> It was entirely serendipitous. Uh, I'm glad it happened, but it was uh, there was no planning behind it at all. What drew you originally to the study of the American South? Well, I grew I grew up in a very southern family. I grew up in Dallas, Texas, but my family was all from uh, old Mississippi, Kentucky, South Carolina, Georgia, uh, steeped in that uh, steeped in that history. Uh, it, you've lived in Texas, Andy, so you understand that uh, in many ways uh, the Civil War is not not yet finished. <laughs> Alas. <laughs> and uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that was sort of the, the historical world that I grew up in. Uh, and I was fascinated by it. Uh, and as it turns out, it's kind of interesting because uh, more, more recently, I've, I've really developed a fascination with the parallels between Western history and Southern history and how those two, how those two interact. Well, and that is certainly sort of a theme that's at the heart of your new book, which, um, which we'll get into. So Continental Reckoning is the third installment, although it's the fourth actually published in this really incredible, success, incredibly successful series by the University of Nebraska Press um, on the history of the American West, which I sort of think of as the sort of history of the West equivalent of the Oxford history of the United States. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it joins your book joins enormously successful volumes by Colin Calloway and Anne Hyde, and then most recently, Sally Deutsch's book on the first half of the 20th century, which appeared actually sort of just before yours. I'd love to know a little bit more about sort of this broader project um, and how you got pulled into it. And when you began working on the book that that I now have sitting on my desk staring back at me. (laughs) Well, um, the series was was founded by and is and continues to be edited by uh, Richard Ettelane, uh, Dick Ettelane, who who taught for many years at the University of New Mexico and retired quite a while back. And Dick was an old friend. I've known I've known Dick Ettelane for 
more than 50 years. Uh, and he, he approached me. I know him as a fine editor and he knows the American West very well. So I said, uh, sure, I'll do that. Uh, I had no idea what I was committing myself to. <laughs> uh, and uh, the book has been in the works for well more than 20 years, probably 25 years or so. Um, as I got into it, I realized, number one, the complexity and the richness of that story. My, my job was to uh, was to cover uh, the what I think of as the birth of the American West after the expansion of 1848. Um, actually, in fact, my, my original assignment was to cover the history of the West from 1865 until 1900. But after studying it, I uh, had a year's fellowship uh, at the Huntington Library. And, uh, and after after a year of, of working on this, I realized that uh, the real dividing point is not 1865, which, of course, is the end of the American Civil War, but rather 1848, 1845 uh, to 48. And that's when you know, the, the West begins to be born and, is, and, is, and, is, and, is, uh, and emerges as, as, uh, as part of the American nation and, and part of an international community. So uh, I switched my uh, uh, bookends, uh, chronological bookends, uh, from the 1840s until around until around 1880. Uh, so the the uh, this this at least this volume of the series uh, evolved in that way. How did uh, how did Dick respond to your uh, changing chronological parameters? <laughs> he, was, he was he was not terribly happy. <laughs> he, yeah. Uh, of course, I'm sort of stunned. What What are you doing? Um, but I convinced him, you know, and I just started at the end, or very pretty quickly. He he saw he saw the point, uh, and that is the, you know, in the history of the American West, the birth of the American West, the Civil War comes in the middle of the story, uh, not not at the beginning. Uh, so to to start in 1865, he has me uh, have you you know, jumping in with two feet right in the, right right in the middle of the of the of the narrative. Uh, it makes much more sense to think of this in terms of uh, starting with uh, expansion of the 1840s and what I talk about in the, in the book, what I call the great coincidence, almost exactly simultaneous with the uh, final signing of the treaty of the third act of this expansion of the 1840s, you know, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in uh, February of 1848, almost exactly simultaneous with that. Um, James Marshall discovers gold on the American River within 200 hours of Nicholas Trist signing that treaty. Uh, Marshall picks up that first fleck of gold worth about worth about 50 cents, um, and that sets loose what at the time was far and away the greatest and richest gold strike, gold rush uh, in the history of the world. And mm -hmm. those two things together, the completion of expansion, the discovery of gold, have enormous implications not just for the West, but for the, uh, for the United States. I love that, uh, that coinage, the great coincidence. And I want to come back to that momentarily, okay. but I still want to stay maybe at 35,000 feet because I'm really intrigued by sort of the, the, the wider conceit um, of doing a book this big on so much material and itself as part of a, of a broader series. So um, I'm really familiar with your oeuvre, Elliot. So it seems, sounds to me, You've been working on this book for 20 or 25 years that you were probably doing it in some way simultaneous with work on the contested plains um certainly um uh on the last indian war about chief joseph and the nez Perce. how did you balance or in fact were these somehow synergistic but how did you manage these multiple projects at a single time i guess is a question that i've got yeah oh, well it, it was not not terribly easy <laughs> it was uh... You know, my family and friends um, suggest that I have uh, I suffer somewhat from uh, attention deficit disorder. <laughs> I've, become, I've become fascinated with whatever what sort of new trends are developing in, in my in our field of uh, Western history and uh, and all of this. You know, and so there were several examples of that during the time that I was researching and, and moving toward writing uh, writing this book. The emergence of environmental history is a is a, is a crucial uh, part crucial way to understand the history of the West, for example, um, various forms of, uh, of ethnic history, uh, new approaches to Native American history, all of that. This happens simultaneously, and I, and I tend to get diverted. Uh, and so I would, you know, the Contested Plains, and a book before that, The Way to the West, uh, where my uh, first exploration into environmental history, um, the last Indian War, 
has to do, uh, among other things, of, uh, with uh, new approaches to Native American history and how how our uh, treatment of Native Americans uh, fits into the larger uh, the, the larger uh, chronology, the larger development of, of American history during that time. Uh, so uh, it, was, it was very difficult, you know, to, uh, to keep all those balls in the air. On the other hand, it was enormously rewarding. Uh, I guess I learned so much by moving into those other those other those other projects uh, and, and seeing them through. And all of that really kind of comes together, I think, in this uh, in, in this most recent book. Let me ask you one more broad question. Well, a couple more broad questions, but one of them is uh, certainly about sort of your turn to environmental history. Um, I think that uh, listeners who are familiar with the Contested Plains will know exactly what I mean uh, when I say that it just revolutionized how I understood Great Plains history, particularly yeah. this notion of all this energy locked up in the grasses um, of the plains and yeah. how that yeah. provides certain opportunities, but also imposes certain limitations on the people, particularly the native people who call it home. Um, how did how did your interest because your early work um you know the saloon on the rocky mountain mining frontier is uh, a classic work of social history how did uh, what was it that sort of turned you at least in part um but very successfully to these questions of environmental history uh, well as you suggest my earliest interest was in social history uh, by that i mean <clears throat> basically sort of the history of, of everyday life you know what History of communities, especially history of families. Um, it's it's always, but still is, still is a great uh, a great draw to me in terms of um, in terms of what I what I'm interested in, what I what I'm working on. Uh, basically, I just I just I just love to to study how people uh, you know made their way through their days back and during this extraordinary time of, of the uh, the American frontier. So that was my First fascination, the, uh, the first book um, on saloons and the Rocky Mountain mining frontier. That was followed up by a book called uh, "Growing Up with a Country," which is a history of children uh, and, and childhood on the on the American frontier. Um, I'm the father of five children, so hardly hardly a, <laughs> a uh, an outgrowth of the curiosity of looking at my own kids, my own children, and wondering you know what would, what would life have been like for them back in uh, you know. Colorado in the eighteen uh, the eighteen fifties and sixties, for instance, uh, but then you know while that was going on, uh, this extraordinary work began coming out in environmental history, uh, most notably by people like uh, William Cronin, Bill Cronin, uh, Richard White, uh, Donald Worcester, um, and it was it just uh, as, as a friend of mine likes to put it, uh, just rearranged my mental furniture. You know, I got mm. became fascinated with what they were doing. And it happened that I uh, received a, a year-long fellowship uh, right at that point. It was about 1992, as I remember, um, to the Newberry Library, very fine uh, library in Western history in, in, in Chicago. So I uh, decided to use that year, that fellowship, uh, to simply retool to learn what I could about uh, what I could about um, environmental history. So I spent a lot of time both at the Newberry and then I would get on the train and go to Northwestern University. They have a very large uh, library in, uh, uh, in environmental studies. Um, so I spent sort of divided my time between uh, between Northwestern and the Newberry um, and began to think about how what I was learning might apply to the part of the country that was fascinating me at the time, and that is the Great Plains. I was, as I said, I went to graduate school at the University of Colorado, and I was fascinated with the Colorado history and with the Colorado gold rush in particular. So I began to look at it through the lens of this when I was learning about environmental history and, and realized that, you know, the big story was not so much in the mining towns where I studied saloons. Uh, the big story was on the plains, the plains. And, the big, and this story involved uh, all kinds of people and developments, uh, certainly uh, Native people, uh, as well as the, uh, the, the, the Colorado gold rushers. So, so that uh, that was that was my 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 introduction to it. Uh, I wrote about that first in a collection of essays called "The Weight of the West," which was yeah. uh, came out of the um, uh, a lecture series at the University of New Mexico, the Horn Lectures, uh, and then I built upon that, used that as a sort of a stepping stone to write this uh, larger narrative uh, that became uh, that became the book on the, on the Great Plains, on the Contested Plains. Right. 
right? Which again, I just admire so much and have assigned so many times and always, thank with, you. Great, thank well, you. always with great success. Students love it. Um, okay, so I'm biased because the decades that you consider in Continental Reckoning are frankly those that most interest me as well. But I'm going to argue uh, for the idea that this is the most consequential period in the history of the American West. Um, you're welcome to take issue with that if you like. Uh, <laughs> but let's go ahead for the sake of argument and accept that for a moment. How did you determine what to include and what to leave out, or at least to shrink um, in your description? Because so much happens. I mean, um, it's I won't go through it all, I'll leave that for uh, for the readers, but from the US-Mexico war really to Wounded Knee, with everything in between, it's such a monumentally um, tumultuous era. How do you organize yourself sort of to take on a synthetic treatment of this type, yeah. given all that happens? Yeah. In a lot of ways, uh, Andy, that was the most difficult part of this. You're, you're absolutely right. What, but, um, the period, that, the period that I'm talking about, uh, so much happened, so much happened, uh, and not just that, so much happened simultaneously. It's all, it's all right. going on at the same time. Right. And it's a, I think you know, I think you and I've talked about this before, but I think if you had to come up with one word uh, to capture uh, what's happening in the in the birds of the West, uh, it would be energy. Because this extraordinary explosion of activity and of, and of sheer energy being being exerted and drawn from the West at the time um, reminds me of that um, oh that you know the, uh, the the well-known quip of the Canadian uh, Canadian comedian who talked about a, a, a Lord somebody rather who uh, jumped on his horse and and rode off in all directions <laughs> <laughs> that's what it, that's what this feels like uh, so I had to figure out a way to somehow um, get that under control uh, and to organize it. And what I did was, first of all, use, uh, break, uh, break it into three parts. Uh, the first part uh, leads up to, from the 1840s, leads up to and through the American Civil War. The Civil War was uh, critically important for Western history and for the uh, for the control of the West by the, by the federal government. And then I turned to the second part, um, which I call Things, Things Come Together, uh, this this big sprawl of events uh, before the war kind of come into a focus uh, over the next uh, over the next ten or ten or fifteen years. And so I, you know, I look at exploration. I look at science. I look at um, I look at the human uh, makeup. You know, this uh, sort of the human profile of the West. What's going on here? And in the um, in the third part, um, I I, uh, I call it uh, worked into being. Um, I look at the, uh, I divide that into three, three very familiar uh, economies of the U.S. I look at ranching, I look at agriculture, and look at mining. But I try to I use those as a way to organize what's, how the West is being absolutely transformed, uh, both in human and physical, geographical, environmental terms, um, and at the same time being knit into uh, this national economy and an international economy. Uh, being the West is born as being brought into the world, being, being part of this of this larger context, larger world, um, and I use these uh, these familiar economies to um, to look at that, but also to complicate all of those stories. We're all familiar with images, you know, the lone cowboy for ranching and the uh, homesteader for agriculture and the the old sourdough and the, and the uh, <laughs> prospector for money. Um, but I try to uh, complicate that as much as I can and to show that how this really is a uh, each of these things offers fundamental insights, not just into the development of the West, but into how the development of the West was reflecting um, the larger course uh, changing the, uh, the change and the larger course uh, of American the American narrative uh, in a way that takes us into modern America of the 20th century. Hmm. Well, we are still in the flared end of the funnel. We're about to get into the narrow end, which will bring us into specifics. But I have one last question for you, particularly because you mentioned agriculture, which you write about incredibly well, but I still have to ask, 
uh, maybe betraying my own prejudice here, were there any subjects you had to consider, but which didn't necessarily fascinate you? Um, and I'll offer, like, in other words, was there some castor oil that you had to take? And as a confession, yeah. this is what has always deterred <laughs> me from taking on a synthetic project of my own. Yeah. Are the things yeah. you have to write about, but don't really want to. Were there any things yeah. like that for you? Uh, yeah. Again, it's a confession. Um, I have... Um, this is an odd, odd thing to say because I grew up, I mentioned that I grew up in a newspaper family. My father was the editor, was the editorial director of the newspaper. I grew up in a very, very political family. Uh, and as a consequence, um, politics just bores the jabbers out of me. It just, <laughs> it just, it just, I, can't, I, cannot, I cannot get into it. Uh, but of course, you have to. You have to. So uh, that came a little late. It came pretty painfully. Uh, uh, but, you know, did the best I could. This is not this is not a book uh, I think you would turn to to get a full scale, full blown, detailed uh, political history of of the West during these years. Because. On the other hand, there were also uh, topics that fascinated me uh, that I ended up writing about at first, but then had to cut uh, because the book was um, uh, the book was very long to begin with. I ended up cutting it by like a fourth to a third. Um, for example, uh, religion. Mm. So the role of religion in the West, uh, and I mean by that not just you know the history of denominations, the history of Western Methodism, the history of, uh, of you know, Presbyterians, or what. Before. I'm talking about the role of religion in people's lives, uh, because you don't have to read too much social history. Again, that early fascination of mine to realize that uh, these people's uh, religion was very important to you know, how they. How they looked at their own lives, how they, their values, shaping the values, how they interpreted, how they responded to uh, life, life on the frontier and life in the West. So I, uh, I initially wrote about that. I had a had a had a section a section on that um, connected with agriculture in this part, uh, in this part. But um, but didn't have room for it, so I had to cut it out. Hmm. Yeah, I bet that was painful. And it's one of those things I've definitely been admonished on this myself is that we, we, yeah. we historians of the late 20th and early 21st century don't give merely the attention to the importance of religion in daily life for most Americans um, no, that, right. that they imparted to it. Um, yeah. For whatever reasons, we seem to leave that entirely to the so-called, you know, re religious historians or the historians of religion as if that could be kind of chopped out. Okay, right. let's get a little more specific. Um, there are library shelves dedicated to the topic of 19th century U.S. westward expansion. Uh, what what makes your take distinct from these, or how does it interact with the literature that already exists? Well, you're right. There's huge literature on this. <clears throat> um, I think uh, if I had to, um, in all modesty, <laughs> suggest how mine uh, is set apart a bit, what I really try to do in this book is both... Um, it is both uh, write a history of the emergence of the West, the birth of the West during these years, 18, roughly 1848 to around 1880. But it, it occurred to me that uh, the more I got into this, it, the more it occurred to me, the more it, I was convinced that uh, this the emergence of the West played an absolutely critical role in the shifting of the American narrative. Uh, middle of the 19th century, we can all agree on this, I think. In the middle of the 19th century, the, the, the course of American uh, uh, shifts. It takes on a, a, a new trajectory uh, that carries it into the 20th century, carries it into what we think of as modern America. Uh, the event that normally uh, is, is uh, studied uh, for its uh, impact, you know, for uh, is, is, of course, the American Civil War. It's the, it's the usual suspect. It was a civil war that helped transform us into this um, into this new nation. Uh, whether we're talking about economic life, our social life, political life, uh, cultural life. Um, and what I ended up uh, arguing is that uh, that's, of course, absolutely true. Uh, it's, it's undeniable. But what I ended up uh, suggesting is that, in fact, uh, the emergence of the West was uh, at least as important. That we need to think of uh, the emergence of modern, the emergence of uh, the West as um, a part and parcel of the emergence of, of modern America. That is the birth of the West, the birth of modern America. I think we're uh, historical twins, along or triplets, I guess, along, along with the uh, along with the Civil War, and we need to give the West uh, this uh, 
looking at this, the emergence of the West, we need to place that much, much more in this in this uh, larger national and international context. Uh, maybe in distinction to the fact that it's still seen for many people as a regional story. Is that right? It's sort of a, a sideshow to what's happening east of the Mississippi right. River. And of course, yeah, and part of this, of course, is popular culture. Uh, one of the things I write about is how the West becomes uh, this place more, more than other regions, uh, more so than, than the South or the New England or so. Uh, the West, during these years, as it's born, it becomes this projecting place, this great screen upon which Americans uh, project their values, uh, what they want this country to be, what they hope hope, hope it is, uh, projecting their, their anxieties and their fears and their divisions. Um, so uh, as a consequence of that, uh, the Western popular culture emerges as this place of, uh, of great romance, uh, yeah, of, 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 of these fundamental, <laughs> fundamentally exciting stories, but uh, always seen as somehow almost exotic. You know, this other, the, a recent book uh, calls this the America of the West, the American elsewhere. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful mm. phrase. You know, it's, it it's out there. It's out there. Um, so paradoxically, it reflects what America is, another, but at the same time, it's seen as, a, as somehow apart from uh, the larger narrative, the larger course of American history. And what I'm arguing is, uh, okay, uh, we can appreciate the popular culture and we can study why that is the case, but it's not true. Uh, in fact, uh, moving into the West during these years, you would see, you, you would see in a way a, um, a prediction, really, uh, of what uh, uh, modern America would be. You can see modern America emerging in those events as well as the, uh, the West being born. What do you think are those hallmarks? You talk about the birth of the West. What are those hallmarks of modern America that you see stirring in the American West in this period? Yeah, well, well there's several. Uh, you know, begin with uh, economic development. Uh, you know, during these emerge uh, the the you know the tra our, our transition to modern America is one in which we shift increasingly from uh, an agricultural to an industrial economy. It's one of the rise rise of big business of corporate power, and you can see that happening in the West. If anything, earlier than it does in the East, and if anything, even more even more completely. Uh, if you look at agriculture in California, for example, this was some, it was a it was a you know, these enormous mega farms, you know, funded by giant pools of capital uh, and tied into the rest of the world through this economic network. Uh, this economic network through the through the telegraph. Uh, mining, of course, uh, was a uh, probably the most uh, fully developed industrial enterprise in, in America at that in, the, in at that time, leading the world in its uh, in its technologies. Uh, something like uh, science. Uh, one of the things that really drew my attention here was uh, was um, the role of science in the West. During again, this is during the same period, we see internationally. Uh, revolutionary developments in a, in a whole list of, of sciences, uh, geology, anthropology, paleontology, uh, meteorology, <laughs> uh, oceanography, all of these. Mm. Uh, and if you uh, if you look in the West, you will see in every one of those cases uh, that this fundamental work is going on uh, out in the West during this time. The West, in, in many ways, was sort of the uh, the global, the great global laboratory of, uh, of some of these sciences during this period of, uh, during this period of great scientific uh, transition. Yeah. Uh, it's also the story of, uh, of citizenship uh, and how I think one way you can think of the emergence of modern America is that uh, there is this increasingly wide embrace of different uh, peoples, of different uh, parts of, uh, of society brought into the American family, the political family, the social family. Uh, the most uh, obvious example of that, of course, uh, comes out of the Civil War, emancipation. Uh, it starts again, uh, as with all of these cases. Uh, it starts before the war. It starts in the 1840s when our boundaries, our borders, are extended uh, to include dozens of native peoples. Uh, when the Hispanic people uh, are brought in after the war of uh, after our war with Mexico, uh, the, the dealing with uh, this extraordinary ethnic diversity in the mining camps, um, specifically regarding the Chinese. You know, the first time that significant number of Asians uh, became part of American society. So what you see out West is how we began to grapple with this question of who do we include in the American family? Uh, on what terms? How do we try to integrate this great, uh, this great human diversity into, into one people? 
Those are questions, of course, that are still with us. Well, they're certainly very much with us today. We're all aware. We're all aware of the kinds of uh, uh, kinds of um, very difficult times in many ways we're, we're going through right now with the sort of the resurgence of white supremacy and other uh, other aspects of that. All of these ways and 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 more. I think you can see out west uh, how we are how these new themes these uh, these themes of, of modern life are introduced and in many ways uh, they are pursued even more uh, vigorously out west even more obviously out west than they are uh, in the east let's return briefly um to the episode that begins the story uh, which is this great coincidence can you say just a little bit more about that and given what you do with it narratively, given the space that it occupies in the book, not only at the beginning, but just sort of the amount, the, the number of words you devote to it, you consider this incredibly important. What's, what's new about your interpretation? Are you the first person to kind of really think meaningfully about the intersection, the coincidence of these two events, the discovery of gold and um, the, uh, the end of the U.S.-Mexico war? Yeah. Um I don't know whether I'm the first person. I'm the first person I know of, uh, but as you say, there's a huge literature on all of this. Everybody is, of course, familiar with the Colorado Gold Rush. I'm at the California Gold Rush. Everybody is familiar with the, uh, you know, the annexation of Texas and the acquisition of the of Pacific Northwest and the war with Mexico and the and the, and the Mexican Cession after that. What struck me, however, was the first of all just the incredible timing of this. As I, as I said earlier, you know, virtually at the same moment. Of these two things happen. Expansion formally ends with the signing of that treaty, and gold is discovered. Now, it's not just a little gold. <laughs> right. The amount of gold uh, it came out of uh, Colorado for uh, I'm sorry, California uh, in 1852. That was their banner year. More gold came out of California in 1852 than had been mined um, across the world during the entire uh, 18th century. Wow. Uh, now, California, uh, California rush was uh, followed pretty quickly by another in Australia. These are uh, sort of Aussie, Aussie you know, down unders uh, who went back to Australia uh, looking for similar deposits and found them. Um, it was not nearly as large as that in California, but it was significant. If you if you look at the amount of gold produced in California and in Australia uh, between uh, 1848, 49, uh, and the end of the uh, 1860s. That uh, that's uh, more gold was produced during those years in those two places than had produced than had been produced in the entire world uh, from 1492, from the Columbian landfall uh, until 18 until 1848. Uh, it's just it's just mind-boggling. So much gold was being produced in California, for example, uh, when they established a mint in San Francisco. Uh, they began processing and turning it into gold bricks. <laughs> They discovered that there were there was so much gold being processed that the that the, that the, uh, the furnaces couldn't handle it all, and, and gold dust was being blown out of the smokestacks. So they had to, <laughs> they had, to had to go around, you know, about a quarter of a mile around the mint, around, around the you know, around the mint to, to sort of sweep up through these you know gilded rooftops where, <laughs> where there was gold. Wow! Um, and that had uh, you know an enormous impact uh, on on um, obviously. Uh, on American history, specifically beginning with this explosive growth of, of population along the, the Pacific Coast, uh, in California, but then from there up into up into Oregon and, and Washington. Now, to put that in perspective, what you need to think of is that uh, what we're looking at then in California is a place that's two things. It is uh, the wealthiest part, it is, it, is, it is a part of the United States that is producing the greatest, uh, most spectacular amounts of, of wealth, and therefore very, very valuable. On the other hand, secondly, it is the farthest point in, in what is now the expanded United States. It's as far as you can get uh, from the centers of power and authority and authority in the East. Uh, so in order, for, in order for us to, to take full advantage of this place and to keep it, we had to immediately begin to think in terms of connection, of building these connections across across the continent, which, of course, means of integrating the West more fully uh, in, into the nation. So I can start with that. Uh, and then this also raises the question, what I mentioned a moment ago, the question of 
the broader question of citizenship, but more than that, the how we are dealing with these sort of uh, cultural parts of our uh, of, this, of this expanded society. Uh, they're not part of the mainstream. So one of the ways of doing this is simply by um, uh, dominating them as much as possible. So in California, because of the following the gold uh, with the gold rush, we see what was um, one of the clearest cases of American genocide. Uh, and in our history with, with Native peoples. Uh, this work, of course, that has been uh, getting a lot of attention uh, regularly, uh, regularly, lately um, around the work of uh, Benjamin Madley. Uh, so, uh, and then this leads in turn to a series of gold and silver rushes uh, th throughout the interior West. You, know, you see them in certain California, uh, I mean, in Colorado, uh, in Montana, in, in Idaho, uh, in, in Arizona. and 1858, 10 years after Marshall's discovery of gold, 1858, silver is discovered and what becomes the Comstock Lode, which was at the time the greatest silver rush uh, in human history up until that time, second only to, uh, to some in, in Mexico. Mm. Uh, so it, it just continues to spin off, spin off uh, consequences uh, that I think uh, are essential uh, to understanding uh, the very this very rapid development and all of these events that are happening so quickly um, that we talked about earlier. Hmm. What does your book have to say about the importance of the West in the coming and then the prosecution of the Civil War? Um, and I guess maybe as a corollary to that, what do you say to those who insist that the West in this context should be limited to say Arkansas, Mississippi, and Tennessee? <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of strange. Uh, the West gets the West, the West sort of migrates eastward, and exactly. you see see a book you see a book on you know the uh, the Civil War in the West, and you know they're, they're talking about Tennessee for Pete's sake. <laughs> so, so well, uh, of course that makes some sense uh, as long as you think of the Civil War not as Civil War years, but the Civil War is strictly the military confrontation uh, between the Confederacy. Uh, and the Union. All of that, you know, that action is overwhelming, of course, in, in, in the East. Uh, there's a, there's that one uh, sort of botched Confederate uh, effort, uh, this campaign to take uh, to take New Mexico uh, and Colorado, uh, happened very early in the war. But uh, as I suggest in the book, uh, it was doomed from the beginning. Uh, it was a, it was delusional to think that they might be able to pull that off. And despite some uh, early uh, victories uh, by the uh, by the Confederacy, uh, it was it was turned back. Uh, it was routed. Uh, something in the neighborhood of one third of all those involved in the in this uh, in this uh, campaign uh, died before they got back limped their way back into, into Texas. So, uh, if we think of the Civil War strictly as this military conflict, uh, that's right. You know, it's 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 it. It's not even a sideshow. It's just, you know, it's barely on the map. If, however, we think in terms not of the Civil War, the military conflicts of the Civil War, but rather uh, what happens during the years of 1860-61 uh, to 1865-66, then you get a much different picture. Uh, it's during those years, I, I argue <clears throat> that the fundamental breakthroughs are made in the integration of the West into the nation, turning it into truly uh, part of the nation. Before 1861, you know, it was just, uh, it was, it was, uh, <laughs> it was by no means under the control of the government. It, it, was, it was stumbling along. It was a story of ineptitude in many ways. Um, but the Civil War, it begins to come into focus, begins to begin to integrate the West uh, truly into the nation, and that then becomes the great story after 1865 of how, how that is completed. Which brings us to this concept of greater reconstruction, which I think uh, certainly um, students who have been working on the West since the early 2000s um, are, you know, can kind of think of this era in the West in no other way, um, but certainly was revolutionary when you offered it as part of that, um, I believe it was your uh, WHA presidential address. Could you talk a little bit about this concept of greater reconstruction and how um, it differs from prior interpretations of this postbellum era and kind of when this idea and how this idea coalesced for you. Yeah. Uh, well, as you mentioned, uh, it, 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 our first uh, effort to, to 
uh, argument on those lines was in a presidential address of WHA, and that was quite a, 20 years ago or so. Uh, in doing this work uh, that I've mentioned before, and trying to set it into a national context, uh, increasingly it, it became uh, clear to me, as I said, as I said earlier, that the uh, emergence of the West was critical to understanding the emergence of, of modern America. Uh, so what I decided to do, uh, wisely or foolishly, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure, but I decided to take this very familiar term, reconstruction, and, and suggest that we, in fact, take that word literally uh, to try to convince ourselves you know, to, 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 to forget about momentarily. Reconstruction uh, is a history of the integration, reintegration of the American South into the, into the nation. And think in terms literally of remaking, the, 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 the re, re-bondling, if you want to, <laughs> the rethinking of the, re, you know, the, the literally reconstruction of the nation. Uh, and if you think of it in those terms, uh, then it becomes clear, I think, that we're talking about an event that begins with physical expansion. It's, it's reconstructing the same way a house is reconstructed when you add a wing onto it. It is expanded in terms of the kind of questions uh, that we are forced to make, especially because of this great coincidence. Uh, it, uh, it is an, it, 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 it's, it causes all kinds of violence and conflict, uh, which lead to their own sorts of revolution, uh, resolution, not just in the American Civil War, which after all was uh, begun uh, more than any other way uh, over their issue over the expansion of slavery of African slavery uh, into the West. So we see the literally the uh, the nation being rebuilt, uh, rebuilt uh, uh, physically, geographically, but also rebuilt in terms of its fundamental uh, approach of its government, uh, the fundamental questions that are being raised and and uh, and, and beginning to be answered. Um, so it. That's what I mean by the the greater reconstruction, the greater remaking, reformulation, uh, re envisioning uh, of the of the nation uh, during these years. And the West is critical understanding that, as is of course other events, especially the American Civil War. Mm. Another helpful coinage of yours is what you describe as quote the war for Indian America. Um, can you say a little about what you mean by that and uh, what work it does in helping us to understand native white conflict in this era in a new way? Well, I came up with that, uh, came up with that term to try to um, somehow bring together uh, this, uh, this uh, tragic subtext of the larger narrative. And that is the, the uh, dispossession of the military defeat, uh, the increasing encroachment on the lives of uh, of, of native peoples, uh, that's a part of the story we we simply cannot cannot ignore. But of course, it's uh, it, it's this is a story that that has dozens of different parts. Uh, so this was not a war in the sense that is uh, declared by the government, declared to side. In fact, throughout this period, uh, every treaty uh, expresses uh, uh, the, the undying friendship and amity between between uh, the signatories, uh, whether you know. The union, the, the government on the one hand, and, and whatever particular tribe you're talking about uh, on the other. But <clears throat> at the same time, what we see is this: uh, all of these events that we mentioned before, happening all together uh, at the same time, sim simultaneously, um, have, the, have the combined effect to simply destroy the economic foundations of Indian peoples uh, across the West. So the war against Indian America was in part one of, of what we call today settler colonialism. That is the uh, overwhelming sort of juggernaut change and development and, and uh, invasion uh, that, that uh, cuts the legs out from under uh, native independence. And it takes, of course, the war also in a, in a, in a military sense. Uh, the um, But the de defeat of Indian peoples in the West was uh, the, the military, of course, played its part. But what I try to suggest here is that the defeat of Indian peoples came um, far more than any military campaigns, uh, Custer notwithstanding, uh, but in fact, from this transformation of the West, this environmental and economic and political and social transformation of the West as a result of this, um, uh, uh, this series of uh, extraordinary rapid uh, developments.
Hmm. Something um, my stu students commented upon, and you know, you came in very kindly visited my class within the last couple of weeks. My graduate students really enjoyed your book. Something that they commented upon uh, after they'd read it was how well you use statistics and numbers um, to make larger points, not necessarily in terms of, you know, tables and appendices, but um, I'm not sure it made it into the book, but in, in the manuscript form, you've got just one sentence that illustrates this, which is uh, in describing the impracticality of extending chattel slavery into the Southwest. You note that, quote, in 1860, there were about as many native Poles uh, in New Mexico as there were African-American slaves. Um, get, uh, part of this is your ability to find a telling detail, but, but you definitely do use numbers and statistics in elegant ways to illustrate your point. Um, uh, how, what is your approach in doing that and quantifying, I guess, and even if it's in elegant ways, um, some of the things and objects under study? Yeah, well, I have to confess uh, to, to a, a great interest or even a fascination with, uh, with numbers and statistics to illustrate, illustrate some of these things uh, to the point that I have to be careful about not turning to them uh, too much. Uh, but they do tell us so much, you know, in, in a way, I guess that makes me a, a, a a, a, a Turnerian, Frederick <laughs> <laughs> Jackson Turner was himself fascinated, of course, with the census material and all, and all of these, trying to illustrate his own ideas uh, with that. Um, the trick is, of course, is to is, is to use them only when they are so uh, striking uh, that um, they they make a larger point and they make it very vividly. Uh, if you if you if you draw on them too much. Uh, out of, out of the interest and fascination that I have, for example, um, that people get sort of overwhelmed by. So I try very much to uh, to, to use them to, to uh, as I gather them, uh, to use them as wisely as I could and to as sparingly as I could. <clears throat> we apply much more to some areas in, in others, uh, agriculture, for example. But also, uh, above all, try to find um, numbers that, uh, you know, that make these points uh, Quickly and vividly, uh, like this, uh, <laughs> like this comparison of the number of, of uh, black slaves in New Mexico with the number of uh, people who have been born in Poland, about the same thing. Well, until I, uh, even as I asked you that, um, I was reaching for the book and I'd forgotten. You actually begin the your very first words. You have a section called you know, "Prelude," um, and it's seven hundred and seventy-three million five hundred ten thousand six hundred and eighty <laughs> acres, and then you go on to yeah. say that. Between yeah. 1846 and 1848, during the U.S.-Mexico War, the U.S. acquired more than 1.2 million square miles of land, and then explain what that would mean if we were to add that much territory to our borders today, which would include basically all of Mexico and Central America. But it's just a very vivid way, I think, to help readers um, kind of visualize more than anything some of these subjects under consideration. And as somebody who's terrified of numbers to the point of being <laughs> enumerate, uh, I'm really impressed with how you deploy them uh, to, uh, to, to, to really great effect. Um, you also write with incredible verve about the technological innovations that transformed the West between 1850 and 1900, including the telegraph, the railroad, and industrial machinery, among other subjects. Is this something, I'm guessing yeah. that it is, that particularly interests you? Sure, uh, it did. And again, this is something that increasingly dawned on me as I, as I, as I did the research. Another great coincidence, another great parallel, uh, uh, Besides the great coincidence of the gold rush, um, the, the birth of the West coincided almost precisely with what I call the movement revolution. That is, what was at the time uh, the greatest uh, uh, acceleration of the technologies of movement, of people, of things, of information uh, in human history until that time. <laughs> it's, in the, it's in the 1840s, of course, that the railroad begins to really take root uh, in, in the East. And by the time this story is over um, in the 1880s, it has expanded enormously. So the same thing about uh, about the telegraph, um, which is um, was first you know famously tested uh, by um, Morrison Vale uh, in the spring of 1844, just on the eve of, uh, of, of the election of James Polk and the beginning of his expansions. And by the by 1880, uh, there are you know tens of millions of, of messages being sent across the nation. So the nation is sort of shrunk into being in a way uh, through the telegraph and through these technologies of movement. Same thing is, is true uh, 
in, the, in, in maritime commerce. Uh, the what's called a screw propeller uh, is first developed in the early 1850s, exactly coincident with the uh, you know the birth beginnings of the birth pangs of the West, uh, which speeds up uh, increases the amount of things can be uh, traveled uh, can be carried over over maritime routes uh, as well as as well as their speeds. So these two things I think have to be considered uh, together. And one of the effect of, effects of this was uh, that the um, that the American West was demographically quite different uh, from earlier frontiers. It's it's overwhelmingly male because there are so many young men who can head out west, never intending to stay there, but to make a fortune and go back home. So many fathers and husbands are able to go west, you know, because they figure they'll go out alone and then they will um, send for their families later or go back home after they've made their uh, made their money. Um, it's also far and away the most ethnically diverse part of the country during these years. Uh, the uh, percentage of foreign-born persons in Idaho, for example, was nearly twice that of New York uh, in 1870, 1880. And that's because the West was suddenly accessible in a way across the world, accessible in a way that, uh, that no earlier frontier could, 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 could dream of. Uh, so this movement revolution and the birth of the West are uh, not just simultaneous, not just uh, overlapping and uh, by coincidence, but in terms of their in terms of their consequences. Well, something I really appreciate too is you seem to take special pleasure in explaining how things work, and yet you do it in a way that brings the reader in and never feels pedantic. For instance, it was only really in reading your book and your section on uh, the telegraph and Morse code that I finally understood um, sort of how the dots and dashes are sort of created, what they mean, um, and the just the unbelievable transformation that's wrought by the ability to pass messages so quickly. So again, it just it seems as yeah. if you really do enjoy explaining how things work, which is a gift. <laughs> I mean, it really is. Yeah. Well, it's a it's, you know it's a, it's an example of a fascinating example of, of the kinds of things that you see being acted out of the West in so many different areas because of this great technological change that's going on across the world uh, during this time. One of my favorite stories there, uh, Andy. Uh, I can't remember whether it's made into the book or not, but there was a uh, a young uh, telegrapher in Camp Grant in uh, Arizona, and he was in love with a woman who lived in uh, Los Angeles, and they wanted to get married. But the uh, commander at Camp Grant said, we can't afford to, to give you a break to go to L.A. Uh, she couldn't afford to come out to Arizona, so uh, she found a, a minister, uh, and he conducted the marriage ceremony <laughs> over the telegraph between... <laughs> So this fellow in Arizona and his fiance in Los Angeles were married over, over the telegraph. Oh my gosh. Uh, and years later, the way he tells the story, years later, he um, you know, would be talking to fellow telegraphers uh, and they would say, you know, I know your name from somewhere. Where was that? And he tells them the stories. All oh, right. And they said, uh, I was at your wedding. <laughs> 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 and of course, and of course they were. Um, in that sense, uh, it, that to me really summed up a, a, so much uh, that was going on, so much of the effect of this movement revolution. It's it simply uh, distance uh, in times being something fundamentally different uh, than they had uh, just, just a generation before. It's, of course, an early, one more early example of uh, a tendency that we've seen increasingly in modern America, especially today, uh, with the, the world of the Internet. You know, when you hit that stem button on your computer, uh, it's out, it's, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah, it's terrifying. Um, or yeah. camping, um, especially if you hit reply all. Um, okay, <laughs> so the myth of the West clearly interests you as well. You've touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, what can you say about its emergence at this particular moment? Because it is this particular moment, particularly or especially that period, say, from the end of the Civil War until, you know, maybe the collapse of the range cattle industry that I feel is kind of the richest material for the American. American myth-making machine. 
um, to the extent that it's still, I think, when people talk about Western, to the idea of the Western, it's still very much rooted in an 1865 to 1890 um, sort yep. of a place and time. Um, why does it endure to such an extent that for some academics and maybe much of the public, there is no such thing as, quote, a 20th century or 21st century West? Yeah, uh, that's a it's a really interesting question uh, that is not that easily answered, but uh, it's an important question. Uh, I, I recently retired, but before I retired, I taught for 40 years, a course called the West of the Imagination. Uh, and it's really uh, meant to uh, meant to, uh, to tell the story, the history of uh, exactly what you're talking about, uh, the mythic West. Uh, uh, I think the key to understanding it uh, goes back to what I mentioned before. The West, one of the things that happens during these birth years is that the West becomes this, this, this stage upon which Americans and to some extent people across the world are acting out, acting out, you know, what they want to be true about this country or what they fear is true about this country. So, uh, for example, famously, of course, before the Civil War, the West is this projecting ground of the um, hostilities and the growing tension, conflict uh, between the slave-holding southern states uh, and the uh, free states uh, to the north. So they project out into the west uh, what they're what they're afraid of. Project out into the west, you know, the, uh, the increasing what they call an increasing evil intent uh, of the of the other region. Even though what I argue in the book uh, is that there was there was honestly a no practical, no real possibility of African-American slavery as it was practiced in the Southeast being implanted in the West. It was a, it was a dead issue. You know, it, it wasn't there, as I mentioned before, you know, the number of black slaves in New Mexico being the same as the number of native Poles. Um, but, you know, it's that question, it's that issue that more than any other brings about the Civil War. How do we explain that? Explain that uh, we, you know this nation was almost was almost torn apart um, over a question that had already been answered. Uh, strange thing, it's because the West before the war was playing this 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 role. It, it was the projecting ground of of what people are thinking in the East. After the Civil War, uh, the same thing is going on, except the terms are reversed. After the American Civil War, you know, the West is this place where people project their vision and their hopes of national reunification. Mm -hmm. So things like the building of the Transcontinental Railroad uh, begin to be are portrayed as this you know, truly unifying, unifying uh, event in which uh, all parts of the East, you know, can join in, in the in the creation of this of this extraordinary engineering project. Which, in, which at the same time will link the East to the West and bound, bind the nation together uh, through, um, uh, through this new technology. Uh, Indian wars are, are portrayed uh, as, <laughs> you know what, Richard, uh, Richard White is his, uh, what's, it, what's he called it? Um, the inverted conquest? Inverted conquest, right. Where, I love uh, that. They're portrayed, <laughs> they're portrayed you know, it, uh, it, in this mythic West, Indians, Indians are the aggressors, right? You know, it's, it's nuts. <laughs> it's, it's nuts. Their, their lands are being invaded. You know, their economies are being are, are being crushed. They're are they're being increasingly confined to reservations. But they're the bad guys. You know, well, why? Because we need we we need this uh, sort of this uh, uh, considerable uh, sort of savage savage threat uh, to allow uh, Western Americans to to show their stuff. You know, to uh, to to uh, uh, suffer their way into the uh, uh, into the possession of the, of this new country. So you see this over and over again, uh, and that's this becomes um, uh, one of the great legacies of, uh, of 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 the birth of the West. This becomes a great uh, this becomes then a a mythic vision. Uh, of the American people uh, that survives into the 20th century until today. Well, one of the reasons why what we do as Western historians, I feel like continues to have particular relevance or at least interest from the general public. Um, as I've told you on countless occasions, I'm an enormous admirer of your writing style, which I consider 
unmatched by your peers in Western history and even the profession at large. Oh, so thank you. Uh, thank well, you. yeah, you've heard me say it before, and I'm on record now. Um, <laughs> let me ask you this: How do you approach your craft, and what makes the experience of writing so obviously enjoyable to you? <laughs> well, um, well, as I said before, I, I grew up in a, a family of journal, journalist family, and I went to journalism school, J school, they called it. It was down at the first at SMU, uh, uh, your neighborhood, Annie, uh, and then later down at uh, University of Texas at Austin. Uh, journalism is a is a very effective way of of uh, of teaching people uh, effective writing, uh, which is uh, by, by that I mean writing that is direct, uh, that is uh, simple, uh, that is straightforward, uh, that is uh, thought out. Uh, and ones that uh, I think relies also very heavily on the use of examples is make it as, as vivid as possible. Mm. Uh, all of those things that were taught to me and my my uh, brother, who, as I said, became a journalist uh, as we were growing up, uh, taught by our father, and then taught by both of us uh, in, in in journalism school. And so I found that to be very uh, very helpful once I began to to write history. Uh, in terms of the, the writing itself, I write very slowly. Uh, if I can do 500 words a day, that's a that's a real accomplishment. Um, and and then I rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. Uh, I think that's uh, always good advice for for uh, younger historians uh, getting into the business. Read it aloud, uh, see how it sounds, uh, how the how the words uh, fit together, how they fit together, whether it makes sense. Um, and uh, and finally, uh, I think a good a good way to learn how to write well is to read, mm. <laughs> read a lot uh, in different fields, different areas. Uh, and then when you read something that's quite effective that you consider excellent writing, uh, ask yourself, uh, how is that done? How did the, how did the author do that? What, what was he or she thinking? Uh, how did they put this thing together? And I think if you sort of practice those fundamental, uh, those fundamental approaches, uh, I think you can, uh, you've got a leg up uh, into writing that is uh Effect, uh, effective and above all uh, approachable that is relatable by um, other readers and i presume that reading you recommend is not just nonfiction, but could be you know you know fiction or short stories as well absolutely. is that right that's absolutely right i've got a couple more questions for you elliot mm -hmm. you've been very okay. generous with your time um i'm curious uh you mentioned Turter earlier. Uh, you mentioned a couple other historians, uh, probably who are more peers than antecedents. But let me ask, which figures in the field um, have you taken your inspiration? I don't necessarily identify you with a particular school. I consider you a terrific generalist, as it were. And there are too few of you out there. But um, who were the, and of course, maybe they're not, maybe they're not just Western historians, but who were the, uh, the, 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 the writers um, who have most kind of influenced and inspired you? Well, uh, um, first of all, what you might call him a highly modified Turnerian. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think that the... Uh, the idea of frontier, especially if you take the idea of frontier and expand it uh, and complicate it uh, away from the way that Turner wrote about it, uh, is still a uh, still a highly provocative and, and a useful way to think about what was going on. I'm also increasingly, and you and I have talked about this, Andy, um, a great admirer of Walter Prescott Webb, uh, who was the longtime professor at the University of Texas at Austin again, uh, who wrote this uh, this classic work uh, on, on Western history, uh, The Great Plains. Um, in a lot of ways, the collection of essays that I wrote, um, The Way to the West, is a kind of an homage uh, uh, to, to Webb. It, it's structured, it's four essays are structured along the way, along the lines of what Webb did in The Great Plains. Uh, the title itself, The Way to the West, uh, is uh, the title of a book that Webb um, was reading at the time that he had his great aha moment, mm. uh, famous, famous episode uh, when he first uh, came up with the idea of the book, uh, The Great Plains. Uh, contemporary writers, uh, I'm a, a great fan of, uh, with some of my closest friends, um, Richard White, uh, recently retired from uh, Stanford University, uh, Patty Limerick, Patricia Limick, who is uh, um, still teaching at the University of Colorado, uh, Donna Worcester, 
uh, environmental historian, now retired from the University of Kansas. Uh, these are uh, these are historians that I've found uh, who are not just close friends, uh, but I found to be uh, very provocative uh, and uh, full of full of insights uh, that I would never have had on my own uh, if if it had not been for them. Hmm. I'm going to steal from another podcast host, and unfortunately, I listened to so many that I can't remember whom um, who asked this uh, at the end of a uh, of an interview um, with an author, which is. You know, what would you hope that readers remember about your book, most especially five or ten years from now, if they if it's boiled down to its essence? What would you hope it has done for them? I think it would be what I mentioned earlier. That is, uh, it, in many ways, Andy. I think I don't know whether you would agree with this or not, but in many ways, the the great challenge of Western historians, certainly of my generation, and I think to an extent uh, yours as well. You're a bit younger than I am. Um, is to just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, uh, is to bring the history of the American West fully, more fully, into the American history, into the history of the, of the nation at large. Uh, just somehow try to uh, at least mitigate, if not overcome, uh, this tendency to see it, as we said earlier, uh, to sort of floating out there, uh, something apart from the larger American story. Uh, that could not be more incorrect cannot be more wrong. Uh, and in, in a lot of ways, that is the great intent of this book, not just to tell the story of how the West came into being, not just to tell the story of how that interacted with the rest of the country, but to make it truly part of the larger story of American history, so that you, the argument would be you cannot possibly understand uh, the transition of this nation into a modern, modern America uh, without bringing uh, without bringing Western history and its, and its many events into that into that story. That's what I hope would be the uh, legacy of it. I wonder, is that reflected to a degree in the title, that in order to you know have a true continental reckoning, you've really got to bring the West into the story, um, as opposed to sort of thinking again that all the important developments are east of the Mississippi and are political from the top down? That is, a, that is pre precisely the meaning uh, of that title. Uh, we have to think of American history continentally, and we have to reckon with the consequences, our, our consequences of understanding, uh, if we are going to um, do that seriously. Hmm. Well, you mentioned that you retired recently in 2022. This feels like a gauche question, but one that I feel obligated to ask anyway. Um, what, if anything, is next on your writing docket? Or are you going to enjoy uh, traveling to far off places and um, leave the history to uh, uh, to reading rather than writing at this point. <laughs> well, uh, I, I have nothing nothing on the horizon right right now. I'm, I'm taking a break. This is a uh, this book, as you, as you might suspect from the length of it um, and the the, you know, the the range of material it covers, uh, was a real effort. Uh, and I'm ready to take a break now. Certainly traveling. My wife and I, my wife Suzanne, just uh, retired February first of this year. And we just got back from a wonderful cruise along the uh, uh, Chile, uh, coast, the Patagonian uh, Chile, Chilean coast. Uh, we're going to be going to uh, England and uh, in Italy uh, in in June. Uh, so we're going to certainly travel. I'm trying to do a lot of uh, volunteer work around my hometown of uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas. In other words, just sort of exploring what what life is out there after you after you leave academia and after you uh, finish a large project uh, like this. Who knows beyond that? Uh, I don't know. I cannot imagine not researching. Uh, I can't imagine not writing. It's so much a part of my own, uh, has been such a, part, such a part of my own life that uh, sure, of course I'll do it in some way, but exactly how, I, I can't say. Well, Elliot, thanks again for an incredibly interesting conversation. It was a real joy and a, and a, and a privilege to speak with you today. Well, thank you. It's, it's always always a pleasure, Andy, uh, to uh, get together with you, and I hope to do that uh, again soon, personally. Excellent. The book is Continental Reckoning, the American West in the Age of Expansion, uh, just published from the University of Nebraska Press in its History of the American West series by Elliot West, alumni distinguished professor emeritus at the University of Arkansas. Hope you enjoy the episode.